Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can think of, has its own history. Like rhubarb, ants, and huts. Well, I think we should definitely do huts. That's all about ornamental hermits. I think ornamental hermits and Anglo-Saxons. Or we could do flutes, brutes, and shoots. Fruits, mutes, and shoots. Shoots spelt... (laughs) C-H-U-T-E-S, which in fact is all about the history of the Helter Skelter, I think. I think we should definitely do that. However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very, very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of shopping is in fact all about ancient street vendors in Pompeii? It's about peddlers, it's about William Shakespeare's play... The Winter's Tale. It's about trade cards and the material culture of retail. It's also about extravagance. And would you believe it? It's also all about early modern gloves. Or that the history of birds, yes, birds, is in fact all about the Battle of Waterloo. It's about plumed helmets, costume feathers, hats, the American Ornithologists' Union and Cruelty to Birds. It's also about canary resuscitators, the use of canaries down mines and in the trenches during the First World War. So there, a whole range of things for you to get your teeth into. Mm, Thank you very much for that. Sounds fascinating. The man doing all of this talking, let me just say, of history, was an Australian pet dog in the 19th century. Right, you've got to bear with me here. And the venom of an Australian tiger snake was the corruption of truth by disingenuous propagandists. This man would be the homemade but effective antidote developed by local Aboriginals, the guardians of the past and the caretakers of history. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grim days of lockdown 3.0 in the United Kingdom. Well, let's just say, if he were a sort of snake-related historical person, he'd only be the historical equivalent of Vava Suresh... uh, (laughs) Wait for it. An Indian wildlife conservationist and snake expert who has captured over 200 king cobras and rescued more than 50,000 straying snakes. So amazing is this person, 
at rescuing history from the jaws of distinction. <laughs> Wait for it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. <laughs> the jaws of distinction? Did you yes, mean that? Of extinction. Oh, extinction. Very good. Extinction. Well, I mean, obviously the jaws. Yes, you, you rescue history from the jaws of distinction because what we don't want in histories of un- the unexpected is to be distinct in any way. <laughs> or go. extinct. Yeah, you know what I mean. Amazing. I loved it so much. We're doing the history of snakes every Everyone, um, I've really enjoyed doing this. Oh, do you know, been... s- snakes slither absolutely <laughs> everywhere in history. I, yeah, I was I... amazed. And do you know what? I am totally phobic of snakes. I can't go, I, you know, if I'm in a foreign country where there are snakes, I'm constantly looking around the ground <laughs> looking for snakes. And I, I was reading Bill Bryson's Down Under last night. Uh, which is uh, the book that he wrote about Australia. And he he really goes to town in describing uh, snakes there. And, and your your mention of the, was it tigers, Australian tiger snakes? He mentioned yeah, yeah. two others that are really poisonous. One is the taipan snake that is one mm-hmm. of the most dangerous sort of snakes in the world. And the other was, a, I can't remember, it was a sort of, it was a, a common death adder which I think he described as be actually being really small. The thing about the Taipan is it's actually quite big and you can see it. So you can sort of get out of its way. But this sort of common death adder, he said, you know, just basically buries itself below the surface, you know, in the sand. So you sort of sit down on something and then immediately die. Um, <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm slightly I, I, I collect stories about uh, about deadly snakes. I had a friend of mine, Kirk, the wonderful Kirk Malnikoff down in um, uh, North Carolina, was telling me about these these sort of black snakes uh, near him that, were, that weren't the sort of snakes that would sort of just, you know, walk away from you or walk away, slither away from you. They would actually aggressively attack. And they remind me of those those um, those terrifying snakes um, in the, those garter snakes in that David Attenborough documentary, Planet Earth, the ones that chase that poor little iguana. Uh, have you seen that? Where they, where this iguana, it sort of follows the iguana on the Galapagos Islands as it sort of crosses over the beach. And then suddenly you see the slithering in the shadows of the rocks. And then suddenly, literally a whole army of garter snakes whiz their way across the beach. And the iguana um, luckily manages to flee for safety so as you can see i'm i'm slightly scared of snakes <laughs> you are do you know what that gives me my best starting point um, excellent I-, I came across a wonderful book well done peter hobbins you've written my new favorite history book uh, called <laughs> venomous encounters snakes vivisection and scientific medicine in colonial australia and this book right it's about the relationship between humans and animals more generally conceived not just snakes in colonial australia so you've got loads of um you know, Europeans, basically, who are used to there being kind of sheep and rabbits and badgers and stuff going out to Australia. And it's how they deal with it. You know, like you were talking about this fear of snakes, how they actually handle it in the 19th century. It's an absolutely brilliant book. I hugely enjoyed it. And um, one of the things that he identified is that... um, Well, but basically, they're trying to, to work out... Uh, not only how to deal with snakes, they also got to work out which ones are poisonous. And then they've got to work out how to deal with that poison. And one of the ways they do it is with vivisection. They actually they uh, conduct medical experiments on live subjects, um, usually domestic animals. 
And this is, I, you know, from 1788 right up to the, you know, the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, and primarily from 1840, you've got settlers orchestrating the, the transfer of venom from snakes into living and unwilling creatures to see what happens. Um, absolutely extraordinary history. And not only were they doing that, but they were actually doing it sometimes as a form of entertainment. And even if it was entertainment, they, I suppose there was, a, there was a bigger goal at the end of it. They're trying to understand the nature of snakes and the nature of the venom that each snake had. But the idea of it being uh, entertainment was, was um, really extraordinary. And this whole, uh, abs- uh, sorry, this whole uh, business is largely absent from the well-known um, historiography of colonial Australia. Now, his sources are many and varied, but he does use uh, one particularly brilliant thing I want to read out to you. Um, This is a poem from um, a guy called Banjo Patterson. Uh, uh, That really is his name. Um, Very popular um, uh, uh, book of poems called The Man from Snowy River and Other Verses, published in 1895. It sells uh, something like 7,000 copies within a month. And it tells the story of a guy called William Johnson, and he's trying to find a cure for snake bite. Um, essentially, he thinks he's going to make him really rich. And what he does is he consults an Aboriginal man, a guy called King Billy, who um, tells him to watch a contest between two, two indigenous Australian creatures, a goanna and a tiger snake. And what happens is that the goanna, the lizard, emerges triumphant, kills the snake, and then shuffles off immediately and starts eating from a nearby bush. Johnson presumes that this is the nature's remedy. And so he goes to a, a scientific guy and he talks about it and what he's going to do. The scientific bloke tells him to try it on a pair of dogs. Um, and he does do it on a pair of dogs. And, and he makes sure to give his own dog, who is one of the two he does his experiment on, um, the remedy. But unfortunately, his dog immediately dies. And it turns out that um, this... Uh, this remedy, which has been cooked up by William Johnson, is actually more poisonous than the snake's venom. Uh, it's called Johnson's Antidote. I'm just going to read a bit out for you. Down along the snakebite river, where the overlanders camp, where the serpents are in millions, all of the most deadly stamp, where the station cook in terror nearly every time he bakes, mixes up among the doughboys half a dozen poison snakes, where the wily free selector walks in armour-plated pants and defies the stings of scorpions and the bites of bulldog ants, where the adder and the viper tear each other by the throat, there it was that William Johnson sought his snake bite antidote. Loafing once beside the river, while he thought his heart would break, he saw a big goanna fighting with a tiger snake. In and out they rolled and wriggled, bit each other heart and soul, till the valiant old goanna swallowed his opponent whole. Breathless, Johnson sat and watched him, saw him struggle up the bank, saw him nibbling at the branches of some bushes, green and rank, saw him happy and contented, lick his lips as off he crept, while the bulging in his stomach showed where his opponent slept. Then a cheer of exultation burst aloud from Johnson's throat. Luck at last, said he, I've struck it. Tis the famous antidote. Now, I'm going to carry on, but I'm cutting out lots and lots of verses. It is really an epic. So he rushes to the museum. He finds a scientific man. Trot me out a deadly serpent, just the deadliest you can. I intend to let him bite me. All the risk I will endure just to prove the sterling value of my wondrous snake bite cure. Even though an adder bit me, back to life again I'd float. 
Snakes are out of date, I tell you, since I found the antidote. Said the scientific person, if you really want to die, go ahead. But if you're doubtful, let your sheepdog have a try. Get a pair of dogs and try it. Let the snake give both a nip. Give your dog the snake bite mixture. Let the other fellow rip. But alas for William Johnson, ere they'd watched a half hour's spell. This is after he's given the dogs the antidote. Stumpy, who is his pet dog, was as dead as mutton. The other dog was live and well. And the scientific person hurried off with utmost speed, tested Johnson's drug and found it was a deadly poison weed. Half a tumbler killed an emu, half a spoonful killed a goat. All the snakes on earth were harmless to that awful antidote. So it's a wonderful poem. Not only is it entertaining, James, but actually neatly encapsulates a a number of things about the relationships between um, uh, these uh, people living in Australia and um, their understanding of snake bites. I mean, primarily they're dismissive of Aboriginal knowledge. So it's really key that William Johnson basically ignores the advice of uh, the Aboriginals he's initially discussed it with. Um, But at the same time, they're convinced that the local environment would furnish a cure um, it's proof that they turn to animals upon which to try their their beliefs and watch to experiment. Um, and that, they, they didn't just turn to it. They almost sort of demanded experiments on live animals. And um, whether it's in pubs or public institutions like museums, you've got proof here that a, the, the sacrifice of domestic animals um, was was frequent. It was very much out in the open and it was pretty you know unproblematic to them in a moral sense a wonderful little history there james from colonial australia very good and and very impressive rhyme scheme as well i know i want to i want to seize your 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 venom your poison and take it in a different direction sam and i want to talk about it uh as 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 a weapon so the weaponizing of snake poison and this has a very fascinating and ancient history. I mean, you only need to think back to the ritual suicide of Cleopatra, you know, to know how deadly these, um, this, this poison could be, this venom. Um, and I was looking at the archived exhibition, uh, Venom, Killer and Cure, at the Natural History Museum, which is an extraordinary uh, exhibition uh, charting the history of venom. And what, what struck me is the way in which ancient and medieval peoples used, you know, sort of snake-filled devices, you know, against their enemies. Um, and, you know, they used toxic substances in order, not only uh, not only um, in sort of to cure people, but also as a as a weapon against people and you only need to look at the Scythian warriors um, and we've talked about the Scythian warriors in the past ever since we went to see that excellent um, exhibition at the British Museum uh, of them a few years ago and one of the things that they did of course was they used to coat their arrow tips in snake venom and of course this would you know they'd then shoot it it would go into the body of the of an enemy person and you know, and slowly sort of kill them. Um, but what they did was actually quite extraordinary. And not only did they um, did they dip these arrows in in snake venom, um, but they actually had concocted this this sort of mixture that wasn't just snake venom; it was also human blood and animal feces. And they left this underground 
to really go off, putrefy, ripen, whatever you will, become increasingly toxic. And then they would apply it to their weapons, to the tips of their arrows or to their to their spears. So, you know, absolutely terrible. Um, but there are other examples of well, as well. Um, Hannibal Barker, uh, the Carthage, Carthaginian, uh, who lived between 247 to 181 BC, and one of the things that he used to do as a military commander was, and you'll be interested in this with the maritime element, was basically to throw pots of snakes onto enemy ships. And the thing there is that when you're on a ship and you're in close quarters, you know, you've suddenly, you're supposed to do all the sort of tasks that you do on the ship, uh, including defending yourselves about, uh, against oncoming enemy ships. And suddenly you've got all these... Um, yeah, all these poisonous snakes crawling all over your deck. So it's a really uh, effective strategy. Um, it was also a, tip, a tactic used in 198 um, during the siege of Hatra, uh, which is a, a fortress city in modern-day Iraq. Um, and what they did was they, they sort of sent up a sort of a range of sort of venomous things, um, bugs and scorpions, but also snakes uh, that landed on the people. Um, so we've got it being used in the in the ancient world uh, in various ways, you know, not only the snakes themselves being thrown and allowed to sort of act as sort of, you know, proxy, proxy weapons, uh, but also harvesting their venom. But also in the medieval world, there's a fascinating interest in medical literature in venomous snakes um, and in particular you know paying great attention to the kinds of of sort of the, the real sort of details of the snake bites so descriptions of you know the blood pouring out of of the holes that that snakes left great attention to the size and shape of puncture wounds the gory symptoms all of those kinds of things um, and all of this is part and parcel of this Natural History Museum uh, exhibition. Um, and there are also treatments for snake bites uh, during this period. I mean, one of the sort of most basic ones is actually getting somebody to come along and suck the venom out of the wound. Uh, not something that you'd really want to do, but there are there are accounts of this that survive. There's also a concoction um, called theriac, um, which was a sort of concoction, a, a sort of universal cure um, for all sorts of ailments, but also used to treat um, snake bites where 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 venom was involved. And it's made by putting together a number of ingredients. So you you. You mix um, ground up snakes with herbs and spices and would you believe opium um, and mummy powder was also sometimes added into this. And then you'd also put things like um, walnuts or, or, or a rue, a sort of, you know, another sort of herb, you'd mix it all up and then you would you'd sort of put it on the um, on the wound. Um, but then. You talked about the sort of discovery or, or the sort of uh, investigation uh, and sort of and oral history knowledge of uh, snake bites and how to cure them. But it's not until the 
late 19th century that we actually get some of the first uh, attempts to make antivenom. Uh, and this connects us to a man called Dr. Leon Charles Albert Camet, who lived between 1863 and 1933. And he was a, an immunologist and biologist, a Frenchman. Um, and he was appointed director of a branch of the Pasteur Institute in 1891. Um, and he started studying snake venoms and bee stings. Um, and what happens is there's a sort of a spate of, of snake attacks uh, in southern Vietnam. But several people die from these snake attacks. And what he does is several of these snakes are sent to him at his institute. And he starts developing a serum to neutralise cobra venom. Um, and what he does is he injects um, animals with tiny little amounts of the venom uh, and, and rather like when you're making a vaccine for something, the body's immune system sort of starts fighting it and releases sort of antibodies that counteract it. And from that, he comes up with a, a serum uh, that contains these toxin-fighting proteins. And this sort of leads to one of the first, uh, the world's first snake bite antivenoms. So there we are, Sam. Wonderful. I love that. Weaponized poison yeah. and the cure for it. Yeah. I've I found a story um I was really interesting just talking about how frightened of it of snakes you were. I've I found a brilliant history of snakes appearing in people's dreams, being that frightened of it that, that they arrive in their dreams. This is wonderful stuff. Um it's all based around the life of Harriet Tubman who was uh, very famously, uh, if you, uh, we've actually talked about her before. She's born into slavery in Maryland in about 1820. She manages to escape her life of slavery in 1849. And then um, she works as, on, on what's known as the Underground Railroad, which is helping hundreds of slave, uh, slaves escape, um, escape from bondage and to get to freedom. She ends up with, a, with an extraordinary level of celebrity uh, for for a black woman during that era, um, and she's a bit like Joan of Arc in some respects, and she has been compared to that because she had visions and she had dreams and she wrote them all down, um, and those dreams have been the subject of you know historical study. And between eighteen fifty eight and eighteen fifty nine, in particular, she has a recurring dream, um, which, which include which involves snakes. She talks about a wilderness sort of place full of rocks and bushes. And out of the rocks, a serpent raises its head, at which point the head becomes transfigured, sort of transplaced onto the head of an old man with a long white beard. The face then gazes at her, uh, wishful-like, just as if he were going to speak to me. At which point, two other younger heads rise up next to the first, uh, and then you've got a great crowd of men rushing in and striking down the younger heads. All very frightening stuff, very vivid and very snake-based. And when she then meets someone called John Brown, and she recognises his face as the man with the long white beard in the, um, in the dream. This is John Brown. He's an abolitionist. And he is known for his raid on Harper's Ferry in October 1859. He initiates a slave revolt in the southern states. And he did try and uh, 
take over the United States arsenal at Harpers Ferry. It doesn't go very well at all. Um, they initially they're successful, but then they are uh, taken captive. They're, uh, they're they're attacked. They're tried for treason and murder for inciting a slave revolt, and then eventually convicted and executed by hanging. Actually, becomes John Brown becomes the first person executed for treason in the entire history of the United States. So not only does she recognise John Brown's head, she also recognises the heads of Watson and Oliver Brown, who his two sons, who had actually been killed during the raid. This is interesting because it is a dream involving a snake from someone who was a slave or an ex-slave, but by no means is it the only dream involving snakes which has been recorded um, from slaves or or ex-slaves. I'm now going to talk a little bit about someone called Louisa Oliphant, because she worked for something called the Federal Writers Project in the 1930s. And what she does is she compiles a list of slave superstitions and folk remedies from the southern states of America. And among the ones she collects are those related to dreams. To dream of muddy water, maggots or fresh meat is a sign of death. To dream of caskets is also a sign of death. You may expect to hear of as many deaths as there are caskets in the dream. To dream of blood is a sign of trouble. To dream of fish is a sign of motherhood. To dream of eggs is a sign of trouble unless the eggs are broken. If the eggs are broken, your trouble is ended. To dream of fire is a sign of danger. To dream of a funeral is a sign of a wedding. To dream of a wedding is a sign of a funeral. To dream of silver money is a sign of bad luck. Of bills, good luck. To dream of dead folk is a sign of rain. To dream of crying is a sign of trouble. To dream of dancing is a sign of happiness. To dream that your teeth fall out is a sign of death in the family. To dream of a woman's death is a sign of some man's death. To dream of a man's death is a sign of some woman's death. And finally, the last one, James, to dream of snakes is a sign (laughs) of enemies. If you kill the snakes, you have conquered your enemies. And not only does she create this list, but her writings are absolutely fascinating and they include very, very detailed accounts of dreams. Um, this is from Annie Boyd. I sure do believe in dreams. This is uh, She was a, an ex-slave from Hopkinsville in Kentucky and she records a dream that something was choking me. I pulled at my dress and a big snake dropped out of my bosom and rolled down on the bed. She wakes a moment later and sure enough there was a snake on the floor by the bed. She kills it And she comes to the realisation that a friend of hers would turn against her in a few days. But by killing the snake, she knew that she would conquer her enemy. That's just one of really a remarkable, um, remarkably large and remarkable for its content collection of dreams, um, which was collected in the 1930s from uh, slaves and ex-slaves in the South. Fascinating stuff. Very, very good. Very good. Those snakes, they slither everywhere. I was I was also reading another Bill Bryson recently, A Walk in the Woods. Uh, and I think Bill Bryson is a brilliant travel writer, but obsessed with uh, with sort of scary, scary creatures like snakes. And he 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 sort of talks quite a lot about rattlesnakes that he meets on the Appalachian Trail. Because the whole thing is about him doing the Appalachian Trail. And he describes how this one camper uh, woke up in the middle of the night uh, and felt something wriggling around in her sleeping bag and looked down uh, to find a snake basically 
bunkered down in the sleeping bag, sort of cuddled up to her. Absolutely terrifying. But I want to take snakes in a different direction and to talk about snakes and mythology, because I think, you know, snakes are absolutely everywhere in mythology, whether we think about it in whether we think about it in, in Greek and, and Roman mythology, whether we think it in, about it in the Bible. Um, and they, you know, they are in sort of Christian tradition. They're in ancient Greece. They're in indigenous North America. And I want to end up by talking a little bit about that. They're in the, the sort of Aztec culture. And there's a wonderful mosaic that I don't think we're going to have time to talk about, um, which is at the British Museum, which is a double-headed mosaic um from the sort of Aztec empire um represented representing this sort of um you know amazing uh culture there but we can think about it in Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and the the serpent being the devil we can think about St Patrick driving snakes out of Ireland we can think about the viking sea serpent Jormungand we can also think about um, Medusa, the sort of woman with uh, with um, with snake hair and will turn people to stone. We can think about the the snake in the Book of Job in the Bible, um, the Leviathan and the Behemoth. Um, but what I want to talk about in particular is actually uh, a group of Native Americans, a tribe called the Hopi tribe, and in particular their snake dance. And this again. Uh, if you if you Google this and you have a look at um, at images, uh, there are there are some amazing um, pictures of this ceremony, which still continues today. Um, and it's been it's it's a tradition that has been there for thousands of years, where members of the Native American tribe, the Hopi, uh, who live in the northern part of Arizona have been doing this dance for a whole you know for millennia uh it's a it's a tradition that takes place across multiple days uh, it's full of symbolism so it's connected to their sort of their belief systems it's connected to their the way in which they see uh, the cosmos working um it, very sort of um you know detailed beautiful ceremony but it actually culminates in um, the men of the tribe uh, parading around with live snakes, not only wrapped around their necks, but also in their mouths. And I think this is the thing that has made it so sort of notorious today. Um, the, the, this sort of s this snake dance, as it's called, where they have they have non-venomous but also venomous snakes there. So they've got rattlesnakes, sidewinders, bull snakes, garter snakes gopher snakes uh and it's truly um it's truly um terrifying for me as somebody who's utterly you know utterly um you know phobic of snakes um but at the root of it is their idea of this close relationship and intimacy with snakes and, and rattlesnakes that is connected to rainfall and fecundity of the land um but yeah, but also it's a, it's a belief that brings them into conflict with Pentecostal Christian churches, because, of course, the snake represents Satan. So, the, you know, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And so, you know, there is to 
Christian, certain Christian uh, thinking, a sort of demonic element, which absolutely is not part and parcel of, you know, the Hopi uh, tradition that it, it for them it is much more about fertility and and you know and their their sort of connection to the world um and it is a 16 day ritual um you know some accounts think that it's 9 days but it, you know the the stuff that i've been reading about it talks about it taking place over 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 16 days and it it and it has meaning that is attached to to the weather the sort of the, the winds it involves um the snakes being individually baptized to being washed with milky yucca root suds um the anthropologist western labar uh who who lived between 1911 and 1996 researched this whole sort of phenomenon and he commented on the on the symbolism of it uh and he wrote the Hopi make quite an arbitrary connection in a complex symbolism of snake phallus arrow lighting in their own explicit statements. Weapons symbolise the warrior's specific maleness, they say. The warrior gods of whom the warriors are representatives are explicitly ithyphallic. The images of the gods are made of lightning-struck wood. The lightning snake is the arrow of the gods, and the lightning strike the cornfields is the act of fertilizing them. So there's there's this whole range of symbolism there that I think is deeply meaningful. There's also a connection between their belief about um, the synchronization of Orion and the solar system. Uh, another researcher writes. The night sky over the northeastern Arizona is brilliantly clear and Orion is a great constellation, only rivalled at this latitude by the plough turning around the pole star to the north and by the scorpion lying low on the southwesterly horizon. But when Orion is up, it dominates the sky over the Hopi villages, both by its scale and by the magnitude of its individual stars. So this whole thing sort of is connected to Earth, wind fire all the sort of um all the different elements and it culminates with a marriage of the snake maiden and the antelope youth which takes place symbolically merging two societies and then ends with this day of the snakes and the snake dance that that we've described where these these men go around you know, carrying snakes around their necks and in their mouths, probably to show, partly to show their sort of their manhood, but also, again, as I said, to sort of connect with their ancient tradition. So there we are, Sam. There's a sort of metaphorical and spiritual um, meaning of snakes. Wonderful. Well, I hope you've all enjoyed our sneaky podcast. I very much have. And um, I think we could have talked for hours about the history of snakes. I certainly found an unusually large amount about them, have as you, I think James did as well. Have you ever eaten snakes? Yes. Eaten snake. I wondered whether you might have eaten snake in China. Yeah, I have. Definitely. And have you have you drunk snake wine? That rings a bell. I couldn't tell you where. So, no, snake wine is literally it's it's snake dissolved in alcohol. I think. <clears throat> I'm sure somebody will correct us. Um, Do get in touch. Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, the whole history of eating snakes. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed that, guys. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Doctor Sam Willis. 
And I'm at James Daybell and the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. Uh, you can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. And we also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can find out all that we've been doing. We have written five books uh, and you can find signed copies available for sale there. And also our homeschooling page. And I've just checked it up. Snake wine. It's an alcoholic beverage produced by infusing whole snakes in rice wine or grain alcohol. Yum, yum. <laughs> it gives a whole new meaning to a snake bite, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Uh, we're back soon, guys. And um, we're sticking with an animal theme, aren't we, James? We're doing elephants, I think. That's we're doing one of the... elephants and something. What, what else are we doing? Elephants and <laughs> buttons. Buttons are brilliant. <laughs> buttons are all about the turn in society in the early modern period. Yeah, looking forward to those very much. All right, guys, we'll be back again soon. Cheerio now. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. Bye.